Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Switzerland. Today in Talking Robots, we interview Cynthia Brazil, who is the director of the Personal Robots Group at the MIT Media Lab in Boston. Remember Rosie the robot maid in the Jetsons? She would help around with the family chores and meals, but most importantly, Rosie could smile, get angry, and interact in a very personal way with the Jetson family. So, what does it take to make creatureoids, humanoids, and everyday objects display social intelligence like Rosie's? Hi, Cynthia. Welcome to Talking Robots. Hi. Your laboratory is called the Personal Robots Group. What do you mean by personal robots? Uh, well, for us, uh, our interest in personal robots is basically bringing robotic technologies into the lives of, of anyone um, in human society. So I think there's going to be a lot of different kinds of personal robot technologies in the future. Um, but we're particularly interested in robots that can interact with, cooperate with, assist people um, as partners. And why do you believe that it is so important to have robots which can socially interact with humans? Well, I think there's a number of reasons why I think it's important. Um, the first, of course, is that if we're talking about future applications where robots are coming into human society, clearly they're going to be <laughs> in the context of people all the time. Um, and they're going to have to be, you know, well-adapted and um, synergistic with people and, and what people are trying to do as part of their everyday lives. Um, they can't be distracting um, or, or, you know, get in the way. So um, the ability for them to be socially savvy, I think, is just important for them to be able to fit in. And so we even just, you know, want to have them around. Um, for the kinds of robots that really interact with people, um, in order to help people, say, achieve people's goals, they're going to have to be able to collaborate with people, um, to work with people as partners. And that's a critical side of, of social interaction. So I know, you know, in the past when people talk about robotic toys, social has been more as a sort of entertaining sort of thing. But for me, social really has to do with social intelligence. And, and this, of course, touches on every aspect of how, you know, we as people are able to interact learn from, communicate, work with other people. And I think, you know, for a lot of applications for robots in the future, they're going to need to have these same sort of social abilities. So you've created several robots which are capable of interacting with humans, such as Kismet, the MDS humanoid, or Leonardo. Uh, maybe can you present uh, one of these robots to us? So um, Leonardo is... The most recent robot that we've been developing, well, I've been here at the Media Lab, um, in many ways has been our sort of flagship product, uh, project on um, building socially intelligent robots. And we've been looking at many different aspects of that for Leonardo, focusing primarily on social cognitive skills. So having the robot be able to, you know, what we say, understand people as people, people are psychological beings, you know, our behavior is not just determined by physics like, you know, inanimate objects, which has really been the focus of much of robotics in the past, but people, of course, have minds and bodies. 
um, and our behavior is determined by beliefs and goals and intents and feelings and all of these other mental states. So a lot of our work with Leonardo has focused on, you know, what psychology would call mind reading or, or theory of mind skills. So how do you appreciate the mental states of others? And, I mean, one of the core aspects of that, again, is this is a fundamental competence that allows us to predict, understand, relate to others in order to coordinate behavior. So in order to collaborate or cooperate with someone, you need to coordinate minds in order to coordinate bodies. And so robots need to be able to coordinate minds, so to speak, in order to coordinate bodies with people. Um, and so the development of these social cognitive skills and, and its application and intersection with many forms of social learning, so the ability for anyone to be able to teach robots um, through demonstration, imitation, tutelage, I think is going to be important. Um, the ability for robots to be able to work with people as, people as um, teammates um, to provide assistance is going to be important. The ability to interact and communicate in human terms is going to be important. Um, and those are probably the, the three core research uh, research areas we've been focusing on with, with Leonardo itself. Let's talk about Leonardo's body and mind. What is what does this robot look like, and what are its actuator sensors and, and computational So Leonardo's capacities? a very different robot in the field in that it really doesn't look like a robot at all. Um, the Leonardo robot was actually a, it's a collaboration with Stan Winston Studio. Um, and Stan Winston Studio, as many people may know, is one of the, the top animatronic design firms in Hollywood. And we partnered with them because, in many ways, no one knows how to build expressive robots like Hollywood. <laughs> but they don't actually build robots. What they build are these sort of advanced puppets. So they have a highly trained team of human puppeteers who bring these robotic characters to life on the screen. Um, so they don't actually build autonomous robots, which, of course, is much more of what academia is, 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 is good at. So I first met Stan Winston um, when I was consulting on the movie AI. This is the Spielberg Kubrick movie. Um, and the character in that movie that I fell in love with was, was Teddy, of course. <laughs> and so when I met Stan, I pitched it to him that we should build Teddy, but we should like really try to build Teddy. <laughs> so basically teaming up and having his expertise in designing these very expressive robots with my expertise in, in building these socially intelligent, socially interactive robots. And Leonardo is, 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 is the result of that. So Leonardo was designed, in essence, to be a character. Um, so he has an organic appearance. And people say he looks sort of like a mogwai from, from Greblins. He's got these sort of big expressive ears. In many ways, he sort of looks like a combination, I guess, of Teddy and an earlier robot I had of, of Kismet. Um, but it has an organic look. It's, it's, it's furry. He's got expressive eyes, expressive face. He has, we, we say he's a Stradivarius of robots because he's, he's more expressive than any robot in the world today in terms of the range of movements in its face and body that are all really tailored for expression. He has over 68 degrees of freedom, all about expression um, and communication. I saw the facial expressions that Leonardo can do. And yeah, personally, I find it amazing. Can you maybe walk us through what it takes to achieve a facial reaction of fear, puzzlement, or joy in a robot? So a lot of our insight, because we want, we want Leonardo to project character or personality, it's important that we come up with techniques that enable the robot to express these states in a very sort of, what you know, people in animations call a believable way. So believable doesn't have to be 
literal or realistic, believable just has to mean that it conveys richly states of mind. So, you know, you know, a Mickey Mouse character, for instance, isn't realistic in its behavior, but it's very believable because you can project these rich mental states. So believability is, is what we're trying to achieve, not realism. And, of course, with something like Leonardo, it doesn't look like any existing animal or, or person. Um, anyway, it's a fanciful sort of creature. So we have flexibility in how we do that. One of the core insights that we employ in order to make sure that Leo's movements are always very believable and organic and expressive versus robotic and mechanical is that we literally take many, 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 many bits of source animation. So we have very skilled animators provide us with lots of data of different ways of expressing and behaving. And then we have a whole code base of techniques that we use to take those original source animations and just treat them literally as data to blend them, morph them, sequence them, combine them um, in a generative way to produce the full range of Leonardo's behavior that it can generate in real time according to the situation in hand versus just a literal playback of animation. Um, and a lot of those techniques are, were actually originally developed in computer graphics for animated characters. And what we've been do doing is translating a lot of those techniques to robotics. Other than facial expressions, what other social capabilities is Leonardo embedded with? So, so Leonardo is capable of um, not only expressing through facial expressions and, and other important social cues like gaze direction, he's able to do a lot of body language, a lot of gesturing, so like shrugging his shoulders, um, kind of leaning to side, side to side, sort of doing this sort of idling sort of behaviors, um, doing literal gestures with its hands and arms and so forth, as well as doing you know simple manipulations with objects. So although Leonardo is really designed for the sort of expression communication side, um, he can watch people do things and he can operate on some of the same simple artifacts that people do in order to do sort of cooperative tasks with them. Um, but uh, a lot of our focus has, has certainly been on how the robot's communication of its internal states, um, so again, this idea of kind of coordinating minds to coordinating bodies, so that people can use their theory of mind and, and mind-reading skills, which is how people understand other people or other entities with mental states, um, to seamlessly coordinate joint action. So there's a, a, an important side of having the robot reveal, and this again is tied to believability, reveal the, its mental states to a person so they feel that they understand the robot, understand what its goals are, understand... Um, what it's likely to do to be able to predict its behavior, to make its behavior really understandable and sensible to the person at all times. So, you know, as the robot is watching the person and trying to infer the person's mental states, like beliefs, intents, and desires, and so forth, people, of course, are doing this all the time with the robot as well and, and trying to coordinate their behavior with the robot. So whether that's communication or, or, or teamwork or, or, or teaching and learning, um, this is a sort of subconscious automatic process that I think people automatically engage with the robot. And so the robot's basically trying to hold up its side of the interaction by trying to do the same um, 
for the person as well and playing its role in trying to communicate those states to a person so they feel that they have a good handle on what the robot is likely to be thinking and likely, likely to do next. So what does it take to be able to understand how this mechanism actually works in humans to then be able to implement it in a robot? Well, so if you look at fields such as um, embodied cognition, psychology, neuroscience, there's been a lot of recent work um, actually looking at um, social cognitive abilities. And a lot of what we do is we learn the literature on what are the latest scientific insights, essentially, of how we think people do this, um, and try to extract some of the key principles or strategies that people employ, and then try to basically implement those models within the robot's own cognitive architectures and cognitive systems. Um, so there's always a sort of translation from the science and the theories and the models that people who study people are coming up with um, and trying to translate that into a technical form that can be executed on a whole network of computers and sensors and so forth to produce the robot's um, behavior. Can you maybe give us an example of one of these models which could be implemented in Leonardo? Well, so, I mean, there's a lot of different models that are implemented with Leonardo in terms of skills like shared attention and um, facial imitation and things like that. Um, the, the overall arching strategy that our work has been exploring in terms of the mind-reading skills is um, informed by neuroscience and embodied cognition, which um, hypothesizes, and this was actually originally proposed in, in philosophy, but hypothesizes that one way that we actually come to infer the mental states of others is by basically using ourselves as a simulator for the other person. So, you know, the familiar phrase of, you know, to understand someone, you have to stand in their shoes, you know, take their perspective. This act of perspective taking by using itself, the robot using itself as a sort of simulator for the person, is basically the strategy that the robot's using in order to make these inferences. And it's applying that strategy across all of its internal cognitive system. So the way that it models the beliefs of another person is by basically taking its own belief construction mechanisms and performing a visual transformation to essentially perceive the world from the human's perspective and then applying the same belief construction mechanisms to figure out what might I believe to be true if I were seeing the world from this person's perspective. Um, in terms of the motor responses, the robot has a lot of motor knowledge in terms of its motor repertoire, and it employs mirror neuron-like processes, which... Um, have been discovered in neuroscience um, where the same mechanisms that are used to, to potentially generate motor actions are also used to help recognize those same actions in others. So the Leonardo applies his motor knowledge and these sort of mirror neuron-like processes to be able to map his body onto a person that he's observing and saying, if I were going through these motor trajectories, what actions might I be trying to do? And then taking both of these sort of belief states and these action states into its more intentional systems where plan recognition is done to say, if I were doing these actions in this context, what might my goals be? What might my plan be? Um, and using that to try to reason about what might the human be trying to achieve. And if the human is having problems achieving it, trying to reason about what problem might be there, you know, what, what might be the problem and how might the robot plan a complementary course of actions um, to help 
the human achieve their goals. And that could be a physical action, an instrumental action to help complete the action for the human, or it might be an informational action, maybe drawing the person's attention to something in the scene that they didn't realize um, was important, alerting them to knowledge. So in, in essence, doing a communicative act to manipulate the person's belief states that once they have correct beliefs, then they can achieve the action that they intended. So, um, I mean, again, a lot of this is very inspired by psychology and, and social cognition in people. Um, but by applying this technique or this strategy throughout the entire cognitive architecture of the robot, it can engage in these sorts of collaborative interactions where the robot can re reason about a person's false beliefs about a situation, recognize that because the person has false beliefs, their actions or their plan might be invalid. So by understanding all of these things, the robot can actually still help a person, even though the literal actions that they're taking is not going to help them achieve the goal that they actually want to achieve. Um, and we have, you know, various papers in the literature and videos you know, showcasing a, uh, this sort of ability within Leonardo. Um, but this is, I think, you know, it, it's it's breaking new ground in social robotics as far as appreciating that a lot of what about being social is is really being able to appreciate the mental states of the people that the robot interacts with. With Leonardo, we've been talking about a, a furry creatureoid, which is quite far from the un uncanny valley. Would you be interested in having robots which physically resemble humans or animals? Well, you know, our philosophy has always been robots are not, and they're never going to be people or other species that we already know. So why try to build something that looks or acts exactly like something that it's never going to be? I mean, it just, in some sense, seems like you're you're setting their your very endeavor up for failure in that, you know, if you try to build a robot that's trying to be human, well, you know, guess what? It's never going to be human. <laughs> so what's the point? Um, you know, we want to build robots that uh, are synergistic with people, that are complementary to people's skills and ability, but certainly are different. And in fact, it's, it is that difference that can bring the value to the interaction. The fact that the robot might be able to do things that people can't do, um, I think brings value to, to the interaction if you think about the, the team, the human-robot team, and how they can complement one another. Um, so as my own sort of personal philosophy, I don't see much value or point, actually, in trying to build robots that try to exactly mimic or mirror something, a species, or, you know, that already exists. I think part of the fun of the endeavor of building a robot is actually trying to be a little fanciful about it, um, And just appreciating that that through these sorts of technologies, you can build something that that is different in a way that is a nice complement to the creatures um, that already exist on the planet. You just mentioned human-robot teams. Do you envision any specific applications for your robots? Well, I mean, I think whenever you think about the partnership of people with robots, I mean, that opens up a vast number of potential applications. So... You know, one, of course, driving application that I'm sure many of the people on, on this podcast have talked about is just the concerns of a growing aging society um, and developing technologies that can help people live independently longer. Um, one of the big philosophies of my group, again, is that robots need to complement people. They're not to replace people. And I think one of the, you know, if you talk to the general public, People always have this fear that the moment you talk about a robot that you're going to be replacing a person or replacing, say, a companion animal and, and sticking a robot in its place. And, and that's never been my group's philosophy. We always think about how do you design these technologies 
that complement and enhance the existing relationships and social networks that people already need and have to live, you know, a quality life. But how can these robots help um, augment or enhance or empower people's ability to live independently longer? So for me, when I think about what happens when I'm, you know, old, <laughs> I don't want a robot that I boss around to do things for me. I want to still be an active participant in my life. I still want to prepare my meals and, and go about my daily businesses to the best of my ability. And if as I get older that gets more difficult for me, I wouldn't mind having help in that, but I want to always remain as active and engaged in my life as I possibly can. Um, so I don't want a robot that I say prepare my meal for me, but I might want a robot that can help me prepare, help prepare a meal with me um, or can help perhaps be a social node in a network to help arrange for a friend to come over <laughs> and help prepare a meal with me. So um, I think looking at these technologies and how they complement our existing human social networks and structures I think is going to be critical for their success and, and acceptance as well as just critical to you know, that technology's ability to help us live better quality lives um, as we age. So humans and animoids aren't the only ones who deserve to have a good human-robot interface. You've also been an active in, uh, in making, for example, interactive flower gardens, robots for the opera, robotic lamps, and computer screens. Uh, how different is this from making a humanoid-like robots? Well, I think, you know, again, if you look at the idea of believability from the animation um, sort of literature, you know, the icon of Pixar Animation Studios is an animated lamp. Um, and it just goes to appreciate that anything can be made to have these sort of social qualities. It doesn't have to be a literal humanoid or animaloid. It, it can be anything, really. Um, and so in many ways, we apply the same principles and ideas to create a collaborative lighting assistant, which is kind of like our version of P Pixar's Luxo Jr., um, as it is to create something like Leonardo that's, you know, more inspired by animal and, and, and anthropomorphic animals, you know. So, um, I think it's fun to actually do projects like that because, it challenges people's notion of what a robot or a social robot really is. A social robot doesn't literally have to have a face. You know, Luxo Jr. doesn't have a face, but there's no question that it conveys character. So, you know, it is in some sense a very social sort of lamp. So um, I think, you know, part of what we're trying to do in my lab is just think very broadly about, you know, once you appreciate that, once you appreciate that, the range of possibilities extends far beyond, you know, animals and people to any sort of artifact. The design space is huge and fascinating. Um, you know, even we see in the case of, you know, the Roomba, for instance, I mean, that was never designed to be social robot. But people anthropomorphize it, they name it, they clean collaboratively with it. I think we just have to appreciate how profoundly social people are Um, and that robots as a technology, particularly the autonomous robots, push those social buttons of ours, I think, harder than any other existing technology to date, that we're just compelled to try to interact with them more as social actors rather than as literal 
appliances. And I think there's a lot of enjoyment for us in doing that. You know, not only are these technologies supposed to be sort of pragmatically useful, but part of the value, if you interpret value broadly, is not just physical labor, but, you know, they're they're fun. We enjoy them. You know, they they put a little whimsy <laughs> in our lives. And, and that has a lot of value to people, too. So, I mean, I think the value proposition of robots is very broad and, and broad in ways that I think we're just starting to appreciate. You were just mentioning the Roomba. When does a robot pass the threshold from being a, a vacuum cleaner to being something which is perceived as social by humans? Well, so, I mean, again, if you look even at psychology, I mean, there's been so many studies on, you know, what are the perceptual cues of animacy? So so what are the basic features that an entity exhibits that we start to treat it um, as a social actor? Um, and even if you go look at the developmental psychology literature, you know, scientists start probing these sorts of features with very young children, even like, you know, babies essentially, with things as simple as moving shapes on a screen, Um And it turns out that there's a set of these very low-level cues that that evoke this this way of of thinking and reasoning. This is sort of social way. So, you know, self-propelled, goal-directed sort of movements, um, contingent response to you, responding contingently to you. Um, certainly, obvious cues like you know, eye-like features or attentional directing sort of features. Um, in the computer literature for human-computer a interactions, Cliff Nass showed that even, you know, language interfaces, you know, those are very powerful in evoking these sort of social models. So there's many, many, many cues um, that robots can, and by their very nature, I think, do project that elicit these social ways of thinking about them in ways that We can't turn it off. We can't avoid it. I think this is just the way our brains work. Um, so then the challenge is how do you design these systems to support that? With all these social robots, I imagine that the way these robots interact with the humans depends on the humans themselves. So how can you adapt the robot's behavior to different humans? Well, so, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. So... In the field of human-computer interaction, there's been many, many studies showing that, you know, even people's own personality tra traits um, impact their perceptions and preferences with different kinds of, of agents that may mirror or conflict with those personality traits. So um, there's cultural differences as well. So I think, you know, with any relationship, and I think, you know, it's a very interesting question in terms of what's, what is the human-robot relationship going to be in the future. But with any relationship, um, there's a lot of learning and co-adapting going on. You, you, you learn the boundaries of any relationship. And the human relationships we have, for instance, or the relationships we have with animals, and there's many, many, many different kinds. Um, I suspect the human-robot relationship is going to be some something different from a literal, you know, familiar human-domesticated animal relationship or a literal, you know, sort of human-human relationship. I think it's going to be something of its own kind, but something that we're going to have to co-create with these entities as, as, as they come into uh, uh, existence. So I think there's going to be importance in people 
I think people already naturally adapt to others when they have relationships, but I think, of course, these robots are going to have to adapt to people. They're going to have to be socially appropriate, culturally appropriate for for the, you know, the cultural um, environment they're situated within. They might need to um, be designed to have different sorts of attributes. Um, people often talk about, you know, uh, extrovert, introvert, you know, for instance, as a sort of dimension of, of personality. They might need to be designed with personality characteristics that are well-matched to the main people who they interact with. Um, there's many variables there. I mean, I think that's a very open question. There's many, many, many possibilities, but I think we're going to, it's going to be a mutually adapting thing, but you would want it to be in a way that is intuitive and natural for people. Let's talk a bit about the future now. As robots become more social, do you see humans becoming more involved in a sentimental or intellectual way? Um, I think people are already involved in a sentimental and intellectual way. <laughs> um, I think, you know, it, if you look at the history of of hum, humankind, basically, you know, it, it seems that going back to, like, ancient Greece, you know, as soon as we're able to imagine or communicate this sort of vision, whether it's, um, you know, mechanical maidens made of gold that are, you know, interacting with the gods in, you know, ancient mythology or or the golem or, um, you know, every time it seems like we invent a new new capability, like the ability to make fine clockwork, you start seeing these, you know, next generation of automatons. So, like, you know, the... Picasso's duck and Leonardo da Vinci's, you know, mechanical lion and so forth. That, that story continues through all of our sort of technological history. You know, you, the moment you start building a computer, now suddenly you're starting to give these creations sort of more versatile, um, mentalistic sort of, of properties. And, and that story continues through today. I think, I think our quest of building these sorts of artifacts um in our likeness um is a profoundly human endeavor and i think i think we do it because we want to understand ourselves and if you look at the history of ancient automata and so forth much of that was in order to explore what it means to be human and to understand ourselves better and i think part of it is because i think we're driven to want to relate to not only things that are like us but relate to things that are different from us so, you know, our relationship with nature, our relationship with animals, I think we're driven to want to be able to relate to things that are not only like us, but things that are different than us. And I think this is just this is just a profound part of what it means to be human. And what do you see as the most promising areas of research in personal robotics for the next 20 years? Well, I think there's going to be many, many areas, I think. I mean, again, we already touched on the aging society. I think the flip side of that is, you know, as, as economies have fewer age working uh, people to retired people, you know, creating technologies that help the working age people be more productive are going to be important um, in potentially supplementing human workforces with, with these sorts of technologies that, can, again, sort of empower people um, I think are going to be important. And that that's very broad. I mean, I think, you mean you can imagine even today when you see uh, robotic technologies on the assembly line, you know, 
before they were very sort of would do the same fixed action again and again and again, but of course they would never get tired. You know, a lot of manufacturing plants are like that. But now you start hearing about technologies being developed where now these robots can actually work with people on the assembly lines um, and become more flexible in their ability to coordinate their actions with assembly tasks with people or, or help people be more productive on the assembly line. So, I mean, that's just one example of going from this robot as a sort of playback, rigid sort of thing, to having to now share the same workspace with, with people. Um, there's many, many, many applications, I think, not only as sort of the sort of pragmatic, productive work, but I think looking even as robust as a new kinds of communication media for distance communication, I think, is also fascinating. You know, we have cell phones today, and they're they're prolific, certainly, but, you know, you still have very few channels in order to communicate with each other. And, of course, technology is driving us to have to work in distributed teams all over the globe, and a robot is a physically embodied entity that could give you a physical presence, a physical co-presence with a person who you're working with at a distance. You know that the the nonverbal cues of communication are much richer, and the ability to do physical work, the ability to shake someone's hand from across the globe, I think, is intriguing. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of the killer apps for robots in the future actually is its ability to help people communicate and interact across distance with each other. And 20 years from now, in which field will robotics in general have had the biggest impact on our lives? I don't know. I mean, I think um, I think we as scientists and technologists are, are notoriously bad at predicting the future that far out. You know, we create these sorts of technologies with certain visions, but so many other fields uh, and technologies change that you always get these sort of the unexpected killer apps. I mean, I, I don't think people in AI ever anticipated Google or even, you know, the Internet, you know. So I don't know. You know, I'm open to just saying that really, you know, I'm, de I'm developing these technologies because I think they're important. I'm developing these abilities because I think they're going to matter. But, but how they're actually going to play out, I, you know, I'm prepared to be surprised. <laughs> Thanks, Cynthia, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Sure, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. That was Cynthia Brazil on Personal Robots. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.